you would open your Bibles to the book of Malachi, uh, chapter 2. Malachi just comes before Matthew. It's the end of the Old Testament, just before the beginning of the New Testament. The subject today is one of justice. How is justice uh, realized in this life? And I want to begin by recognizing the somewhat um, squirrely nature of our concept of justice. It's not, it's not as easy as it sounds. I'll give you a story from my own life. Many years ago, I was driving back from Washington, D.C. It was a super hot summer day, like 96, 98 degrees, and I was stuck in D.C. loop traffic for hours. The kind of traffic that steals your will to live. You're no longer <laughs> trying to figure out, like, should I get in the middle lane or the left lane? All that's done. You know, it just, it's done. And I was actually worried my car was going to overheat. <clears throat> and uh, at one point, I, I look in my right side view mirror, and on the shoulder next to me, zooming down the road, is this guy in his nice Jeep Grand Cherokee. I guess he didn't get the memo. And he's passing cars, uh, just heading down the road. And a little ways back to me, the whole thing settles down right next to my car, but just a few cars back, at some point he passed a cop. And this got fun. (laughs) So he passed, and the police car pulls out under the shoulder, sirens on, sounds going, and the whole thing stops. This guy in his Jeep stops about two cars in front of me, and the police officer stopped about a car and a half behind me. I had a front row seat to the whole show. I was like, this could not have been better. And what was interesting was the guy pours, the guy in the Jeep pours out of his car, door swings open, and he stomps out in his big fancy suit, and he's doing his man walk towards the police officer, like, how dare you pull me over? And I was like, this is going to get good. And the police officer's door swings open, and out comes a handgun. And, sir, you need to get back in the car. And he stumbles backwards and full of panic and climbs back in his car. And all around me, everyone was cheering. (laughs) Everyone was cheering because justice had been done. Justice. Here's the problem. That guy got out of the car with indignation, which means... However it works out in his brain, he thought he had the right to be there. So now justice is a little bit weird because my sense of justice was fulfilled and his sense of justice was violated. Do you see that? You ever hear the phrase, someone drives like they own the road? You're driving like you own the road. Well, that's actually, um, what's implied in that is your perspective on your obligations to those around you on this road are different than our expectations and perspectives of how you should relate to us. Somehow you have a different sense of justice than we do. 
Here's the deal. We all have a sense of justice. And at the same time, we are all self-justifiers. And that's, I'm not, those are not opposites. They exist at the same time. I have an external sense of judgment. I have a list of what you should do and how you should be. And I have in me an engine of self-justification that always has good reasons as to why I am the way I am. We all have a sense of justice, and yet we all self-justify. In our culture right now, this whole concept is mainstream. Words like fairness, inequality, injustice, privilege, rights, freedoms, all of that, all of that is just, I mean, how many times a day do I hear it now? There's, it's this rising tide of unsettledness about the lack of justice externally, yet at the same time is a rising tide of like indignation for telling anybody anything. So in a sense, there's this, you should do the right thing, but don't tell me what to do. And it's, they're rising on the same wave. I find in our culture right now that as the notion and concern for justice is rising, the confusedness about what true justice is is increasing all the more. And I don't think it will end well. I think it will not end well when our externalized sense of justice, what I think you should do, and my internal, my heightened internal sense of personal liberty, as those two rise, there ends up being a gulf between us and our fellow man. We have this gulf, and that gulf is filled with what ultimately is called human hatred and malice. They're not doing what they should, and I am. Now, in this period of time, I'd say this past several, uh, the past decade, there's been tremendous pressure on the church to uh, either adopt, or just pressure on the church to what are you going to do about this, this theme of justice? And one response has been to adopt it, and the other response uh, has been to be quiet about it. So it's either take what I think is not an entirely correct perspective, um, and be confused or be silent in your confusion. It's maybe the sin of pride and maybe uh, the sin of silence. And I will confess to you, I have opted historically towards silence. Uh, and I will say that working through this message, at some level, commands the church must have a better voice. It doesn't need to adopt a voice. It should have a better voice on the subject of justice. Um, but that's what today is about. Today is about this subject. The book of Malachi was written um, to, in the midst of one of the lowest points of time in Israel's history where injustice was, injustice was all around them and where their circumstances did not seem to have anything to do with the promises of God. So God had said they'd have all of this, and yet they have what seems to them none of this. And to them it seemed to be this very significant injustice. And they're confused. And they complain to God. They don't, maybe they don't actively do it, but it's happening and God hears it. And that's where we are this morning. This morning we're walking through, what is God going to do about justice?
And the first verse I want to call our attention to is uh, chapter 2, verse 17. If you're joining us new, we've been walking through Malachi, so I'm not starting in an arbitrary way. We ended at 16 last Sunday. So chapter 2, verse 17, voices the complaint of the people and God's perspective on their complaint. This is what he says, or this is what is said about him. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You hear this? Either God does not care about good and evil, or God does not care about me. That's what, he's, that's what they're saying. In their heart, there's this sense of God sure must not care about what's going on around here, or he sure must not care about me, because if he did, he'd do something about it. That's the perspective in their heart. This fits broadly beneath the banner of the problem of evil or the problem of sin, which surfaces every couple hundred years in the church, right? Everything old is new again. And it's here in front of us. There's evil that we see. There's clear injustice that we see. And we're the people of God. So how is it? Either God doesn't care about it or God doesn't care about us. That's their logic. To which he says, I am so tired of hearing this. That's what he does. In other words, we look around at the world with a very high confidence, a high self-derived confidence of justice, while at the same time, we're blind to the injustices in ourselves. And as a result, we're confused as to how it's happening. I'll give you some examples of some of the ways confusion arises. Sometimes we translate pain as evil, and therefore it's unjust. Pain is evil, and therefore it's unjust. Well, is a flu shot evil? It's painful. I mean, it doesn't hurt me, but I mean, like, if you're weak, it hurts. <laughs> but it's not evil, right? We know it's good. Getting a cavity pulled, it hurts. Is it evil? Is it unjust? No, but sometimes we mistake pain as evil, and then we have confusion around injustice. That's one example. Sometimes we see injustice, but we can't identify the source, and therefore we're confused about it. I think a great example of this is the, the public education system, the chronic failure of the public education system to do what it markets itself to be able to do, and yet our refusal or our, or our inability or our confusion about the source of the problem so that we perennially say, what we need, really need to do is more funding. More funding. Which is a pedantic response to a complicated problem. We're confused. There must be some injustice. Or, we, cases where we see our own sin reflected externally on someone else, but we refuse to confront it as ours. I'll use as an example for this every marriage in the history of mankind. Okay? Where there's something in you that's sinful, 
and then you project it on the other person. You want to know why they're not meeting your needs. So you see how you've self-justified something that has no business being met. And you, now you want to know what's wrong about them. Woe to the injustice. Is it possible that what the need you want met is something that should not be there at all? And the fact that it's something God's trying to root out so that if your spouse was actually to meet your needs, she would be insulating your sin. But we don't see it. We don't, we don't get the love we want. Obviously, there's an injustice. Or we could have confusion because there's times when we choose to call things that are good evil and there's times we choose to call things that are evil good. great example of this is just the sexual perspectives of our time. If I sit down with a couple and I say to them, you know, it's God's will that you reserve your bodies until the covenant of marriage has brought the two of you together so that that reflects the coming together of one is something that is entirely a blessing before the Lord. And your very act of coming together is worship. Well, if they don't want to hear that, what I just said to them is evil. And the evil that they want to do is good. Injustice. And confusion. Hence, God is weary. Like, and in all the muck and the mire of all the various ways that we build perspectives about injustice and the ways we end up confused and all of these things, we end up pinning it on the Lord. Where's God in this? If God cared, he'd have given us a better rule or he'd have really dealt with that. And it, that's happening in the midst of all of this confusion. And this is why God's responding with, man, I'm weary of this. The book of Malachi started with a uh, statement. God said, you know I love you, don't you? You know I love you. To which the people of God said, yeah, really? How? That's how this book starts. How do you love me? Prove it. When we get to a place in life where we, our questions reach to the very nature of who God is, that is a, that's a dangerous place for us to be and a wearisome place for God. And he's going to answer today. He's going to answer this cry for justice in a very particular way, actually. The way he's going to answer it today in the text is with a prophetic word. He's going to give four predictions. He's going to tell them, this is how it's going to work out. I'm going to predict for you how it's going to work out and how justice will ultimately be met. And so we're going to walk through that. If you're wondering, how does God care about justice? How does, does God care about evil? Or does God care about you? I'm here to say the answer is yes, and he's going to show it today in his word with four predictions. Now, and by the way, I'm not going to use all of the numbers of your verses, so I'm going to read like a half a verse. If, you, if you're somewhat new to the Bible, the numbers are not original, so I don't have to follow them. They're just there to help us. Here's the first prediction. It's in the first verse of chapter 3. The Lord says this, Behold... I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's it. I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. God's going to send a messenger. God's coming. Okay, that's implied in this, right? He'll prepare the way before me. 
So God's coming, but in front of the coming of the Lord is going a messenger. And that messenger, it says, is going to prepare the way. The, the tradition for a king when he would travel was that people would go in front of him, right? very bad roads, very difficult travel, and they'd go and they would try to straighten things up so that the travel of the king would be at comparative ease. And they would also go town to town and said, like a herald and say, you know, the king's about to come here, so you could put on your nice outfit and you could look like you were happy to see him. So she's saying, I'm sending, I'm sending a forerunner in front. That's the first prediction. The fifth and sixth, uh, the last two verses of Malachi, in fact, identify this, this forerunner uh, even more. Look at chapter four. These are the last two verses of the entire Old Testament, okay? Verses five and six. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this messenger is like an Elijah. Elijah was an old prophet who did not die. He was carried up to be with the Lord. And there's this sense that there's this Elijah going to come. And in fact, the New Testament opens with a man whose name is John. And John comes as a messenger. And he's clearly full of the Holy Spirit. Nobody questions whether John is of the Lord, whether the scribes, all the way to Roman soldiers. Everyone knows he's a holy man. And it's at one point even that the Pharisees go out to ascertain the exact nature of who John is, wondering, is he possibly the Messiah? And as they get there, John disowns. He says, I'm not the Messiah. And do you know what their next question is? This is John 1. Are you Elijah? Now, where do you think they got that notion? They've been sitting at the end of the Old Testament for 400 years, waiting for a messenger to come like Elijah. Now, oddly enough, John disowns the phrase Elijah. He says, I'm not Elijah. It's not his name to claim. Christ will one day say, John is Elijah, because it is Christ's domain to name people. He is Elijah. He's Elijah. He's come before me. But this is what John does, in fact, say. They say, well, then who are you? And this is what he says. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So there's even another prophet, Isaiah, who says God's going to send somebody who's going to make straight the way of God. It sounds very familiar. And, And John says, I'm him. I'm this voice preparing the way for God. This is the first prediction, that God will send a messenger, that this messenger is like Elijah, that this messenger is John the Baptist. Here's your second prediction. It's in the same verse, at least it begins that way. It says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? That's the second prediction. That the very Lord they're seeking will come. So there's some some quizzical language here. It's a little bit hard to hold on to because he says, I'm sending my messenger before me. 
Okay, that tells us God's coming. And then he says, and the Lord you seek will surely come. And I think, well, that's still the Lord. And then he says, he's the messenger of the covenant. And this is, this is a different messenger. In fact, in some of your Bibles, it might have a capital M. The translators might have given it a capital M because they think this is the big messenger. This is God. This is Christ. If, if you were full in your Jewishness, this would be a very mysterious point because you see, he's going to send the messenger before me. So you go, God's coming. And then he says, he's going to send the, the Lord who they seek is coming. And you go, okay, I'm tracking. And then it's going to be a messenger of the covenant. You go, wait a second. I thought it was God says the Lord of hosts at the end. So in these places of mysterious mystery where God seems to reflect himself in someone else, okay? Now, you and I know who we're supposed to think here. We know the right answer to all these sorts of questions, but they didn't know the answer to this. So you know what they would put, what what concept? It's moments like this that the Hebrews go, he's talking about Messiah. He's talking about Messiah. So prediction one is God is going to send a messenger who will go and make the way of the Messiah clear. Two, the Messiah will come. And when he comes, what will he do? Who can stand when he comes? That's what it asks. We know the answer to that, right? Nobody. Who can endure when he comes? Nobody. This, this put it about all in context. Let's hold the whole thing here. You have a people who technically belong to the Lord, right? They're the people of God, and they're complaining in their spirits. God doesn't care about justice, or if he does, he doesn't care about me. That's for, for sure. He wouldn't let all this going on all around all the place, right? They wanted God to show up and bring a little justice, put a beat down on the people doing justice. They kind of have this attitude, and in their mind, when God comes with justice, he's going to kind of land right beside him, and they're going to be like, yeah, it's about time you showed up around here. Got a lot of injustice over there. You know, kind of like hanging out on a construction site like a foreman, you know. Yeah, you really need to get to that. Injustice. It's been, if you need any other help, I can show you where some other injustice has taken place. Because I have a strong external sense of justice, buddy. Right? And what he's saying is, listen, when he comes, do you think he's going to fly over you? You think he's going to look to you? You think he's going to land and inquire and consult with you about the nature of justice and injustice on the earth? Do you realize who can stand when he comes? You're waiting for a God of justice. Are you sure you want him to come? Because when he comes, you can't stand. You can't endure. That's what he's saying. Be careful what you wish for. I have found in my own life that uh, I'm turning from a justice person and I'm turning into a mercy person. That's what I'm noticing in my own life now. There's, at, and it's funny, it's as, as my sense of justice improves, right? as I feel like I'm gaining clarity on how to look at the world, and on the whole, as I'm growing to be more like Christ, so I'm actually doing better in a time where you might say this would be the time to become a justice person, actually, actually, I'm becoming more of a mercy person. 
my sense of, I see something wrong, and I'm, I, I lean towards grief more than I lean towards anger. God, may they find you. Because who can stand? What gain do I have by being a justice person? Shouldn't we just be people of mercy? He's coming. Who can stand? Here's the third prediction. I'll read two over again so you can help uh, keep up with me here. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. Fuller's soap here, some Bibles might translate it like bleach. Others would translate like strong soap, a launderer's strong soap, okay? A very purifying substance. He's like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. I want you to get the order right. God of justice comes. And what's the first thing he does? Does he vanquish the evil person? I didn't see that there. Does he find the unjust person, the criminal? I didn't see that there. Does he start with the external world, the people outside of God, and really put them in their place? I didn't see that there. Actually, when he comes, the first thing he does is deal with his closest people. I mean, in this case, it says the sons of Levi, which is the priestly tribe. But I think you really don't have, you don't have to go very far to get to the principle that when the Messiah comes, okay, the one who comes after John the Baptist, when Christ the Messiah comes, he is going to first turn to those who are his and begin a purifying work in them. You see that? This is not a moment of judgment. It's a moment of refinement. He was going to refine them so that they are to him worthy. This is now you know why you saw the video, right? Because I spent like an hour this week watching YouTubes on refining silver, trying to figure it out. And then a buddy of mine who's a fancy old engineer stops by my cup of coffee and tells me all the science of it, which I forgot. So I just gave you a one-minute YouTube. But what I want you to note about refining, okay, I just want you to think about this because I like you to think you and I are of the kingdom of priests, are we not? We're priests of the kingdom of God. We belong to God. Okay, we're being, we'd all know from the New Testament, we're being refined by the Lord. So I just want you to appreciate, even in the video, the nature of refining. When Jesus, when the, excuse me, when Malachi says a refiner's fire here, what is that like? Is that like you get taken out of the freezer and kind of put on the table to thaw for a little while? Tossed in the microwave for a minute on defrost? Is it where you kind of get dusted off? You know, you're otherwise, you're a really good thing. But you, you have some impurities about you and you just need to dust you off a bit and then now you're presentable to the Lord. Is that how it is? Or maybe even somebody needs to kind of hit you with a hammer to shake it out. Is that the picture of refinement? Did you see how hot that fire was? Did you see how they took a solid mass, okay? 
This is the nature. You need to see yourself. If you're being refined by the Lord, you need to see your life as intractably solidified with impurity, molecularly bound to an old way of life, okay, that cannot ever be free from that way unless the Lord smelts you down into an entirely liquid, until you have no form whatsoever and you're liquid so that he can pour you into a cast that bears his image. That is what it means to be refined by God. You don't need a little bit of help. Okay, you don't need like a couple of tips. You need to be melted down and refashioned. You find in the New Testament phrases like, you must be born again to capture this. Or anyone is in Christ, new creation. These aren't small concepts. This is God's way of saying to you, if you care about justice the way I care about justice, then I need to climb inside of you and reshape everything. Now, on good days, it's easy to sort of assent to this. Yeah, 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 I need a refiner's fire. It's actually in the really, really hard days where you're actually in the fire that this is important to remember is that is when God is about to do something good separate you from things of the earth, things that will burn away, things that don't matter, things that never provided any real truth, separate you from them to make you in his image. That's what he's going to do. The third prediction, God's going to send his messenger, and then the Messiah himself is going to come, and then the Messiah is going to purify his people. You know, when you read the New Testament, I find when I read the New Testament, and Jesus kind of gives these parables with humdingers and he busts on the Pharisees. I typically find in that that even though I feel like he's busting on someone else, I typically find I still feel, fall under the conviction of the teaching. Like Jesus says, it's written, you shouldn't murder, but I say if you've, been, if you've cursed your brother, you're guilty of murder. Well, I know that there's somebody that sort of gets hit hard by that, but I don't escape it. Or if the Lord says, you want to follow after me, deny yourself daily, take up your cross and walk after me. Well, I think... The man who bore the physical cross just said that to me. I, I, can, I know that some people might need to hear it more some days, but I don't escape it. Or when he says it's easier for a rich man or a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God, I go, how long are we going to metaphor that to escape the refining power of God? We'd say, well, if this is true, it's just sort of like this dismembers all of who I am. Exactly. That's exactly what it does. Here's the fourth prediction. So the messenger is going to come. Then the Messiah or a messenger with a good news is going to come. And then he's going to refine his people. And here's the last prediction, verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The Messiah is going to come. 
He's going to purify the saints. And then we get this, and then God will come and judge the wicked. And it's just worth noting, it's important to embrace, in the house of Christ, there are two categories of people. There are only two categories. There are those who are being purified, and there are those who will be judged. There's not a third category. You do not have the luxury of calling Jesus Lord and not being refined and purified. There's not a third category. There is those who are being made wholly his. And there are those who will be judged. And if the purifying fire is that bad, take a gander at judgment. This is an interesting uh, list. And I, want us to, I don't want us to look at the list as though it's comprehensive. And I don't, I don't really think we need to spend that much time on any one of those accusations or categories. What I want us to note is the, the logic that arranges it. At the very front of the list are the sins that are directly against God and man. So at the top is this idea of sorcery, which was capital punishment in Israel. Okay. This, you have abandoned me, betrayed me for another god. But then right beneath it is maybe the next most important association, which is the sin of the home. Right? Adultery is the sin of the home. And then you get down to the next step, which is bearing false witness. Sort of, It's the sin against the neighbor. And then it's the sin against the employee. And then it's the sin against the disenfranchised. And then it's the sin against the foreigner. You see that? It's just in case you're wondering if, the, if a God sees things and if he cares about justice, he just told you there's not anywhere you can look where he hasn't seen and where he doesn't care, right? He's making a list and checking it twice. He knows what's been done wrong and he's going to find it out. There's nothing, like the whole category of society from the top to the bottom, every relationship is in the heart of God. And he sees it and he cares. And there's only two categories. His in being purified, or not his in being judged. Okay, one more verse. It's the sixth verse. It's not a prediction. It's sort of a principle that kind of puts the cork on the idea, okay? It returns back to itself. So for some of you, you might say, hey, it's below a heading, um, yeah, in some Bibles it's above the heading, in some Bibles it's below the heading. It's a bridge verse. But I think, I think it is closing this thought out. And this is the verse. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O Jacob, are not consumed. To people who are concerned about justice and they're wondering, does God care about truth or does God care about us or they've convinced themselves, like if God really cared, he'd be here or he does this. To people who think in their minds that when God comes, he's going to pass over them and deal justice to others, the Lord reminds them, wait a second, you have it all wrong. It's in my constant nature that you have any hope at all, he says. It's in my nature of mercy that anyone has any hope at all. There's an old story in, in the Old Testament, the old Old Testament, in Exodus, beginning of the Old Testament, where the Israelites are in Egypt 
and God is rescuing, he's in the process of rescuing Israel out of Egypt. Okay, it's the most important story of their people. Okay, and the very last trial that Egypt was going to endure was the trial of the death of the firstborn son. Moses went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. He refused. He said, this is the last time I visit you. Next I visit you, your son will be dead. And the Lord was going to send an angel of death throughout Egypt where he was going to judge Egypt and take the firstborn of the flocks even, the firstborn of every family and even of the flocks out. Do you think that the Jews could just like hang out and watch as the angel of death did that over them? Do you think, do, you know, we say it's Passover. Did the angel of judgment just happen to pass over the Israelites as though, were they better? Is that why it happened? You know what the Lord says? He says, on that night, you need to be in your house. And what you need to do is you need, every Jew needs to be in their house. And he says, you need to find a lamb without blemish. This is, you got to hear Christ in this, y'all. The most important story of Jewish history, he says, you need to find, so the most important story of Jewish history at the climax, you need to find a lamb without blemish, a young male lamb that has no broken bones or anything, no imperfections, has done nothing wrong, okay? And you need to cut that lamb and you need to shed his blood and you need to wipe that blood all over your doorposts because when judgment comes, like God has to see his own blood to give you mercy. Like our whole hope, we are not hoping in a God of justice. We are hoping in a God of mercy. Like Jesus Christ, his blood covers you. And if it were not for the fact that that was the nature of God, who could stand? None of us would survive. I'll close there. You know, the Malachi, let's remember where it starts. It starts with, you know I love you. You know I love you. And I know there's times in all of our lives where we feel like, ah, I don't feel like you love me. Well, sometimes when we don't feel like someone loves us, we need to sit back to the word and read it. He loves us. He loves us. He sent his son for you. who shed his blood for you so that you might be refined by God rather than receive the judgment that will come because there is no third category of someone who believes in Jesus but is not purified. Let's pray. Lord, wherever we are, we come to you. If we come to you in faith, then our prayer is to willingly endure your purification with joy so that we might look like you and be like you, pure, Father, if we come to you as a person in the midst of this mythical third category, I pray, Lord, uh, for decision that they would begin to live towards real faith. Lord, and if there's a person here who's coming to you outside the walls of the city of God, Lord, I pray they would feel welcome, that you yourself said you're the gate, you're the way, that there's not an... Christ does not ostracize people who don't believe. He goes and receives them, Lord. We know how, how much more joy is it for one sinner to come to faith. So we pray, Lord, that this would be a message of invitation to real faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.